Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. If you're looking for an exciting new career opportunity or looking to hire your next great team member, you'll definitely want to check out Adweek's new online jobs board. Featuring job openings in marketing, media, and tech, the Adweek Jobs Portal connects innovative employers with today's top talent. Check it out at jobs.adweek.com. That's jobs.adweek.com. You're listening to, yeah, that's probably an ad. It's the Adweek Podcast, where we talk about marketing, media, technology, advertising, pop culture, because in the end, everything's an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm an editor with Adweek.com. With me as he is each week is Tim Nutt, our creative editor. Tim, welcome back. Thanks a lot, David. And uh, excited to welcome back Charles Getz, our social editor. Charles, it's been a while since we had you on. Welcome back. Yeah, thank you. Happy to be here. Charles oversees all of our many social media channels and... uh, and we'll have a lot of fun stuff to wade in on today uh, with our topics that we've got. And Sammy Main, a digital staff writer, frequent podcast guest, and covers the digital media industry. Welcome back, Sammy. Thank you. It's been a long week since I was last on here. <laughs> How have you been? I hope you're okay. Well, so much has changed. <laughs> All right. Well, we are uh, going to have a fun conversation today about some of the most innovative media plans of the year. And if the word media tends to put you to sleep, I promise we will keep it interesting. A lot of fun stuff and lots of cool innovation in tech and in social and uh, all those related channels. But first, the news. All right. Apple is under fire from pretty much every industry group that you can think of when it comes to advertising. We've got the uh, Interactive Advertising Bureau, known as the IAB, the American Advertising Federation, the Association of Natural Advertisers, or ANA, and the 4As, uh, which represents agencies. So pretty much every every group that represents all the major players in the advertising space, they are all ticked off at Apple for basically saying that they are going to dramatically limit uh, what uh, tracking and retail targeting can do on Safari. Uh, and basically what we're, if I understand this right, one of you can jump in if, I, if I'm if i mischaracterizing this, but the issue is uh, the difference between kind of first party cookies and third party, meaning that if, if I run a website, uh, like let's say adweek.com, and we have cookies that help us serve you up Uh, you know, like help you log into an account or help you get information about our website and, you know, kind of keep that customized to you. That would be fine under this. The issue are these advertising third-party cookies that follow you all over the internet and help retarget you. So, hey, you were looking at galoshes on, you know, Amazon or walmart.com and now you're seeing galoshes on Facebook and now you're seeing galoshes everywhere you go. Haunted by galoshes. (laughs) Uh, Somebody's getting ready for fall, apparently. 
The uh, you know this is an issue, of course, that is highly debated. It's right up there with privacy. Apple has uh, really stepped up, saying that uh, they are going to uh, create this new rule called intelligent tracking prevention, uh, which uh, again lets you kind of block those uh, third party uh, uh, cookies and still leave room for for some tracking, but basically letting people uh, kind of cut that back. I'll read uh, part of the. Uh, statement front. So basically all these industry groups, six different industry groups wrote a letter, co-wrote a letter that says the infrastructure of the modern internet depends on consistent and generally applicable standards for cookies. So digital companies can innovate and build content services and advertising that are personalized for users and that remember their visits. Apple's Safari Move breaks those standards and replaces them in an amorphous set of shifting rules that will hurt the user experience and sabotage the economic model for the Internet. Those are pretty dire words. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The Apple, uh, of course, as you can imagine, uh, feels they are not sabotaging the internet. (laughs) Uh, They responded, they sent a note to Adweek, I believe Marty Swan, our tech reporter, wrote this one up, and they sent a note to Marty saying, users feel that trust is broken when they are being tracked and privacy-sensitive data about their web activity is acquired for purposes that they never agreed to. And so that is their thinking, and they are standing by their decision. You know, retargeting has uh, really kind of fueled uh, digital advertising into an $83 billion business. It grows double-digit percentages every year. I mean, it's a huge industry to be part of, and a lot of that is about retargeting and not these one-off ads. Uh, I'm curious, any of you feel that that this is a move that will be emulated by other players, or do you think Apple's kind of got to stand alone on this? I think for right now, they might stand alone, but we've already seen Chrome, you know, they're going to be firing in their own baked-in ad blocker coming up soon. So there definitely seems to be a concern, I guess, from browsers and browser owners of to kind of what they're letting their users get themselves into without knowing. I don't know how many people are using Safari so much that this is such a concern, Um, but maybe that's a bias from myself and 100% of my peers. Um, We all recently had to update Safari just to watch the Apple's (laughs) conference, you know, last week, and rarely do we open it in between. So I I get like maybe the sentiment is concerning for these, you know, kind of groups of of what it might lead to. Um, I think it's kind of nice that Apple for once is kind of looking out for their consumers and their users and kind of their their privacy. Um, I don't mind less companies (laughs) following me around the Internet personally. But I understand that personalized and targeted ads can kind of help everybody involved sometimes. Well, what's interesting to me is we ran this story several days ago, and um, it is still – it was the number three story on Reddit today. Uh, So, I mean – and it's been in the national discussion for ever since, you know, we first wrote this up. Not that we were the only ones who wrote it up. But, you know, this has a lot of legs with consumers. And Charles, correct me if I'm wrong, but the the online reaction, you know, our headline was obviously about these major advertising groups blasting uh, Apple and Safari. But the the consumer, the social reaction has largely been F.U. advertising groups. Yeah, uh, exactly. And I think I think even yesterday it was still probably our most like tweeted about story um even you know it's been up for uh, over a weekend but yeah the, yeah the mostly reactions from consumers are, are generally this is good we don't care about advertisers or or their complaints um but they, nobody also really believes that apple has like an altruistic goal i think that 
at some point they, they see that there's some sort of end game. Apple usually doesn't get in involved in big decisions or make big splashes like this without, you know, maybe releasing some news about their own ad platform. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if that this isn't the last we hear about it or if Apple is, you know, going to start launching their own internal tracking tools. Uh, I think based, you know, based on having all their hardware sales, I don't really care too much about ads, but eventually they will. And I know things like Apple Music and um, some of their other content offering are probably going to need to be ad supported in some in some manner. Uh, but yeah, you know, you know, between ad blocking and this, I mean, it's just another reminder, particularly the the social media reaction to this. It's just another reminder that so much dig- digital advertising is just forced down people's throats, you know. And while it works to some degree. Um, you know, we always come back to this idea that making ads that people actually want to engage with when they want to engage with them is obviously a much better model. And um, I don't think too many of us probably think it's such a bad thing that technology like ad blockers is forcing marketers to raise their game or that, you know, a big player like Apple is willing to come down on the side of consumer privacy. Uh, you know, this is going to be painful for some marketers now, but it should hopefully make for a healthier ecosystem, you know, in the long run. It's a bit like net neutrality. You know, you really don't have any consumers who are ever going to come out and say, oh, please track me closer. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like there, nor are you ever going to have people come out and say, please, you know, throttle my internet based on what I've purchased or who, you know, which companies are paying the most money. Uh, but you're always going to have these corporate interests that drive it. And this this letter from all these advertising groups, while I think it makes uh, several good points, it also does highlight this very broad schism between uh, the people receiving the ads and the people buying the ads. Uh, that's, you know, they're very competing interests. Well, it's certainly something I, I expect to continue to see uh, popping up exactly like this between ad blocking and tracking. We're going to see this continue to be one of the biggest issues of the year. Uh, but moving on to something a little more fun and kind of following up a story we talked about a while ago on the podcast. Hulu uh, has become the first streaming service to win an Emmy for uh, Outstanding Drama. Obviously, this for The Handmaid's Tale with Elizabeth Moss. Uh, what what uh, a lot of us took a lot of pride in here is we ran a piece uh, a few months ago when the headline was, Is Elizabeth Moss the Best Thing That's Ever Happened to Hulu? I feel like we got a definitive yes on that one this weekend. <laughs> uh, it ended up winning eight Emmys. The Handmaid's Tale uh, won eight Emmys. Now, this didn't put uh, Hulu ahead of Netflix, which, of course, won for uh, all manner of things for The Crown and for Black Mirror and for uh, uh, Master of None. I think they won 20 Emmys total at Netflix. Uh, but, you know, I feel like we've all been talking about this kind of uh, this this new era for Hulu where it went from being kind of an annoying service in a lot of ways. Like even if you paid, you still get ads. And, you know, it's just it was always a bit of an outlier when people talked about their love of Netflix and their love of Amazon. Do you guys feel, I mean, am I overstating the handmade effect or do we feel like we are at a turning point for Hulu here? I think they maybe just had to be annoying for enough years to kind of earn the capital to to make the cool shows they maybe wanted to make all along. Um, for me, I feel like it's, it's hard for me to remember Amazon shows because their friendship with Apple TV is not yet cemented or formalized. Uh, so once it kind of becomes, you know, as easy to access it as it is every other kind of streaming service out there, it might get more viewer attention and it might get more critical attention. 
Um, it, it's maybe a new age for era. I don't know that handmade is necessarily, I mean, I guess now it is kind of, you know, leading the charge, but a, a few of us folks have been on the, the Hulu wagon for a while and it, it's, you know, treated me right for a few years, so I can't complain. But you liked CISO too. Okay, <laughs> yeah. listen, this is a safe space. <laughs> I'm CISO's <laughs> one fan and subscriber and I will die on that hill. It was a good service. There's a lot of good stuff on Hulu there. Hulu probably could have died on that hill as well. I mean, they were kind of just this weird thing for a really long time. If mm. you still had ads and you still had a, a few ep- new episodes from shows and then some shows they would be when they were airing in season. Other, I, I think with Hulu, they just either it took a while to get the licensing deals right for the content or they just finally gave up with their weird half ad model and, and gave consumers what they want, which was a, a Netflix clone. Um, and maybe, you know, a little cheaper if you're okay with ads, but I use Hulu now as just it's interchangeable with Netflix and uh, Amazon as far as maybe looking for old content that you can find maybe other places. But if it's there, it's fine. And I think, you know, their originals are good. I enjoyed the weird JFK thing. (laughs) And I haven't watched The Path, but it's made by a lot of people that I respect. And I think that Hulu just I mean, if they just stopped fighting sort of the trends or trying to be their own place. Uh, and CISO probably could have done that as well with with just as a confusing brand name. Well, we, CISO, if they yeah. could have spent three years developing and then, you know, funneled a bunch of money to people to make high-quality programming. Net- Netflix still has far and away the stronger brand, doesn't it, though, than, than these other two, like Amazon oh, sure. Video yeah. or oh, Hulu? Absolutely. Netflix must be so angry that, that Hulu, not only did they win Best Drama, but, but Elizabeth Moss won, won Best Actress in a Drama. You know, Amazon has had, uh, with Transparent, has had a Best Actor Emmy. Um, Netflix has not won a series Emmy or a lead acting Emmy of any kind. And it's remarkable considering they have, they do have great shows. You know, they have many, many great shows at Netflix and it's just, it's just by, you know, fate that, or or luck or whatever, bad luck that they haven't had, uh, one just breakthrough to, to get that, these top, uh, you know, awards, these TV awards. But can I, can I be the guy that says the Scientology connection to Handmaid's Tale might've had potentially something to do with more recognition explain more yes this some illuminati no uh, elizabeth moss is a scientologist what what this is news yeah okay we're breaking it here on adweek (laughs) yeah (laughs) i don't know i don't know what the scientologist stranglehold on hollywood is but it, it does seem to help occasionally for wow uh Maybe getting inside recognition or, or be willing to vote because it, it would make no sense that Netflix wouldn't have any of those wins outside of spite almost, I think. Well, spe- speaking of these, uh, you know, obviously who need to invest more in the invisible hand is mm-hmm. uh, Amazon. So I feel like, you know, two years ago, everyone was talking about Amazon original programming. We had Transparent, of course. We had uh, Man in the High Castle, uh, quite a few others. This year, man, Amazon shut out no major Emmys, like so. Basically, no actual Emmys the night of. They got two of the Creative Arts Emmys, which is like the Consolation Prize that they were handed a week before. Uh, but man, just what a stunning kind of turnaround, D- Tim. Do you is this just a temporary setback, or do you think Amazon really has kind of slowed their roll on uh, on original programming? Well, no, I think they're. I think it's well known that they want to be the the big player, and they haven't they invested. I mean, didn't they put like eighty million dollars into the into the Woody, uh, Allen. Woody Allen thing? Uh huh. Um, not with, with very little ROI on that to, to show for it. Um, yeah, I think I think they're 
they're humiliated and they and they want to they want to be you know the, the main player they want to they want to eclipse netflix and hulu and everybody else um but you know creatively it's, it's just not happening right now all right. Well, uh, it shall be interesting. You know, it's just funny. I would have written off Hulu two years ago, and then I feel like it's the streaming service that we talked about this year. That said, Netflix, still the juggernaut, still the uh, the grill in the room, whatever metaphor you want. But, um, you know, it's it, it's really going to come down to some very smart – HBO knows this probably better than anybody as it comes down to really smart original programming – and, uh, you know, there was a time where I would have subscribed to HBO maybe just to get Game of Thrones. But now you've got so many shows on there that I look forward to, you know, with Westworld and Deuce seems pretty good. Uh, we're still, you know, kind of early in that one. But, you know, it's you got to you got to be smart with these investments and you can't go throwing your money down an original programming hole that's not going to not going to pay off. Uh, and you can really see the, the meteoric uh, rise and fall you can have with someone like Amazon. All right. Well, that is the news this week. Time to move on to my favorite part of the show where Tim tells us the week's best ads. We call it Ads Worth Watching. Tim, what do you got for us this week? Well, I know we talked a lot about Errol Morris in a recent episode, but I did want to call out uh, his new campaign for Wealth Simple, um, which is a robo-advisor for financial investing. So Errol... Oh, that's um, what they do. Yes. Errol went ahead and shot 56 commercials for this campaign. So um, he's almost 70 years old, but he can, you know, he makes an, a stunning number of ads uh, on many of the cam- of the campaigns he makes, actually, um, going back to the Miller High Life stuff. There was like 100 plus in that campaign. So the guy can really crank them out. And um, these new ads are typical Errol Morris. They're interviews with people um, talking about their um, anxieties about money, which, of course, we all have. Um, they're less testimonials than just kind of stories, personal stories, um, people talking to the camera about their anxieties, about their, their financial histories, things like that. Um, they're really well done and they actually do sort of humanize the category of finance, um, which is hard to do, um, short of plunking down a statue on wall street. Um, but humanizing also particularly important, I guess, when you're talking about robo advisors, um, this is a thing that uses algorithms to guide its advice. Um, so it's, it's good to put a human face on that. Um, but I think what makes this campaign extra special is that Errol Morris himself appears in one of the videos. In fact, I would say it's the best video of the bunch. Um, and it was filmed by his son, Hamilton Morris, uh, who is, among other things, uh, also a filmmaker himself. And it's kind of awesome. I think advertising nerds will appreciate the fact that Hamilton is interviewing Errol here because it's the exact reverse of one of the old Apple switcher commercials from the early 2000s when Errol was the one behind the camera interviewing Hamilton, who at that point I think was about 15 years old. Um, He was, I believe, a classmate of of Ellen Feiss's. Everyone knows Ellen Feiss from the classic switchers ad. All roads lead back to Ellen Feiss. Yeah, so Hamilton, (laughs) I believe, went to high school with Ellen Feiss, which is how they both ended up appearing in that campaign. So anyway, it's a fun bit of trivia. Um, but, but the Errol ad for Wealth Simple, uh, it's about four minutes long. It's really entertaining. Um, maybe we can listen to a clip from it uh, right now. When you were a little boy, I was approached by an investment guy. Do you know this story? Tell me. He was a financial wizard of some kind. We had gotten some money, a small amount of money, and I gave it to him. It's actually money for you. Your mother took one look at him and said, take the money back. Within two weeks, he was under indictment. What do you think it was the mom saw? One of the cuffs on his pants 
had been reinforced with adhesive tape. <laughs> Something I just didn't see. But for her, it was pregnant with meaning. So you can tell he's having fun. Um, there's this sort of charming uh, banter he has with, with Hamilton, who's also heard throughout the ad. Um, in, another, in another section of the ad, Errol also reveals um, what a huge financial impact uh, making commercials has had on his life. It's really kind of remarkable. He says he went from making in the low four figures a year uh, in his career. Um, almost overnight, he was suddenly making seven figures, and that was p- all completely down to commercials. His film career did not make him any money. Wow. Um, so, you know, no wonder the guy makes a lot of commercials. That's uh, kind of how he's financed his whole life. So really, hmm. really fun ad to watch, though. Well, I mean, this kind of came up when we were talking about him the other day. I mean, for those who aren't big fans, he's a, a documentarian, a really fascinatingly innovative documentary filmmaker. But... Man, when we were talking about him, it's like if if you don't have any point of reference for Errol Morris, it's really hard to give people a point of reference. You know, like Fog of War, I think, won some Academy Awards, but yeah, best, you know, best none, documentary. Yeah, none none of it's like you know your 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 uncle that you see at a family reunion is not going to know who Errol Morris is. Like, no, that's offense true. To your uncle, that's true. You know. Yeah, I mean, he's he's not uh, necessarily a household name, but he's he's made. Literally thousands of commercials in his career. Um, you know, as we mentioned on the previous podcast a few weeks ago, you know, he made the the, the High Life Man campaign for Miller High Life through Widening Kennedy back in the late '90s, early 2000s, and that's you know one of the great beer campaigns ever. He also did Apple Switchers. He's done you know so many things throughout the years. Um, he did a bunch of Levi's commercials. He's done. He's worked for dozens of brands and made thousands of ads. So. And, and you know this is not this is not a, a a breakthrough sort of revolutionary campaign for him. It's it's very much in his wheelhouse, but um, his wheelhouse is awesome. So you know, I, I feel like this is my second favorite father son uh, interchange we've had this year. With number one definitely being Richard Dreyfus and Ben Dreyfus. Did you guys follow that on Twitter? <laughs> so Gosh, good. no, I missed that. So Richard, like uh, Ben Dreyfus, uh, Richard Dreyfus's son, uh, someone had asked, what's your favorite Steven Spielberg movie? And he said, Jaws, because I didn't get a scholarship to go to college. <laughs> and so, so my dad used that money to pay for it. And Richard Dreyfus responded and said, no, I used the Poseidon adventure money for your college. <laughs> and, uh, and or maybe it was Poseidon. Was it Poseidon or Poseidon adventure? Anyway, the, um, and. Uh, Poseidon. So yeah, the, just pos- Poseidon. <laughs> the one where the, it was like and, the new, the new school Titanic. Uh, yeah, Richard Dreyfuss rocked a huge diamond earring for all of it, which is, <laughs> made no sense, but it was great. Richard Dreyfuss um, narrated the "Here's to the Crazy Ones" Apple commercial from Think Different oh, campaign. Yeah, uh, wow. I wonder how much money he made from that. And then what role did that have with Ellen Feiss? I feel like we... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a few years before the, Ellen. The uh, but yeah, so anyway, they ended up in this back and forth where Ben was like, "No, no, you did the Poseidon money was for, wasn't for college; that was for rehab." <laughs> and Richard Dreyfuss was like, "Oh yeah, I get them confused because neither took." great father-son back and forth it's like ah good old jokes about my failed rehab Uh, but that was a highlight of Twitter this month I think SoulCycle got mentioned during their exchange (laughs) don't embarrass me in front of my SoulCycle friends dad it sounds like the family you'd rather go spend Thanksgiving with than than your own Uh, well Tim what else do you have for us this week uh, the other campaign I wanted to mention is the new oh uh, work. I, actually if if I could interject I did have one point that was confused me about the well simple I, I I agreed that Errol Morris was um, his ad was much more compelling and interesting the first one I liked and there's a bunch of New York media people that show up but right away they put the um, the guy from Vice who I think just goes around and like does homemade acid um, and films it and I thought that was an interesting choice of a person to 
ask about money or give well, that's, money advice. That's, ha- that's <laughs> Hamilton Morris, isn't it? Is that Hamilton Morris? Is that yeah, his yeah. son? Yeah, yeah. See, that's I didn't his even son. Make the he, uh, <laughs> yeah, he has a show on Vice where he yeah. does drugs. He does drugs and describes how he feels on on drugs. Also, um, now I'm learning drugs. so much. That's Aramore. There, it's Hamilton. Okay, that's all right. So Hamilton, there, that yeah. makes a connection, and that's why I put it in there. So my <laughs> wow. limited media experience was like, oh, that that guy. Um, so the question uh, is, which Errol Morris movie uh, is he going to use the revenue to go through rehab? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, I think it's okay. called Pharmacopia, the uh, the Vice yes. show, uh, and yeah. season the new season is coming soon. I think. All right. Well, the other campaign I wanted to mention, uh, McCann, New York's latest work for Cigna, and they've brought back their TV Doctors campaign. Um, David, I know you are a huge fan of this campaign. Last year when it launched, it basically brings together all these uh, doctors from fictional TV shows, um, including Patrick Dempsey uh, and Donald Faison. And I think this year uh, the big news was that Neil Patrick Harris uh, joins the cast for the new ads along with Kate Walsh. And, uh, you know, it's a really fun idea that these are TV doctors that know nothing about uh, healthcare, And so they're sort of... Um, you know, t- telling you that uh, you, you need to you need to learn uh, you know your options because they they're not going to be able to help you when it comes down to it. So pretty fun ad. Um, maybe we could listen to a clip of this one as well. All right, let's listen to a little of the main one with the four uh, the, all the all four doctors in one place. Here you go. We are the TV doctors of America, and we may not know much about medicine, but we know a lot about drama. From scandalous romance to ridiculous plot twists. <gasps> Son? Dad. We also know you can avoid drama by getting an annual checkup. So we're partnering with Cigna to remind you to go see a real doctor. Go, no, and take control of your health. It could save your life. Doctor poses. So, yeah, not really surprising that they brought this back. Uh, it, it, it was such a great spot last year, and they're... You know, they're going back to the well. Uh, hard to begrudge them that. Uh, David, you love this campaign. I, I know you, you've been a fan from the beginning. Uh, the only thing I'd really fault them on is that, uh, you know, we already had Patrick Dempsey, uh, and now we've got Kate Walsh also from Grey's Anatomy. So that's kind of like of your four doctors. You got two from Grey's Anatomy. Now she was also in the spinoff Private Practice, which was about her character. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of doctors out there. Bringing back Neil Patrick Harris was, of course, uh, inspired. I, w- I would be shocked if that wasn't someone they had already been talking to. Uh, I actually moderated a panel that uh, included the the brand folks who ran this campaign at Cannes this year. And uh, they talked about that the biggest obstacle of this campaign was getting the actors on board in the sense of understanding what they were selling. And essentially all they're saying, as you can probably tell from the clip, is you know they just want you to go get an annual health exam uh, because it could theoretically save 100,000 lives. So this is you know, I guess you could say it also saves an insurance company money if you don't get dreadfully ill because you went to an annual checkup. Uh, but it's generally it's a very holistic thing. And they said Patrick Dempsey really asked the most questions and asked the best questions. And he ended up not only being the star of the campaign, definitely, but he kind of served up and I'm, he was probably compensated for it. But he uh, his personal social channels were kind of a main delivery vehicle of this. So if you saw it on Facebook, you probably saw it as sponsored, you know, a sponsored post from Patrick Dempsey, uh, which I thought was really interesting. But they said that at first he just was kind of like, well, you know, maybe he didn't ask how much you're going to pay me. He asked, uh, you know, 
tell me what the point is. Tell me what what I'm selling here. And when they explained it to him, and I think he had some personal stories about relatives who had gotten very ill because they did not get uh, an exam. And uh, and he really got on board with it. And so bringing back Doogie Howser, a classic Neil Patrick Harris, you can never go wrong with him. Uh, so I'll, I'll be curious. They said that this campaign... Uh, had a you know that they had a six percent increase that so it came out at the beginning of September, uh, and they compared it to the previous September. They said that they had a six percent increase in claims for uh, annual exams, and you know I have to admit I'm one of those people. I don't know about you guys, but I certainly am terrible about getting annual exams, uh, and so I promised them at that panel that I would do it before the end of 2017. I've got a few more months, but I need to get on it. So it was nice to have this. So reminder. you need to do these once every year. What? Yes, you people. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm constantly canceling mine for because uh, I have to record podcasts. No. I just don't. I just don't want to find out the truth. I'm still. I'm st- everything's still mostly working. That's so. the problem, Charles. <laughs> this is <Yeah>. the time. <laughs> Tim's gonna Bye. die like he lived, hovering over a. Podcast microphone <laughs> talking about Errol Morris. Probably <laughs> updating credits on the, some yeah. story. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Tim, for rounding up uh, this week's ads worth watching. It's time to move on to our big discussion of the week. All right. Uh, this week, we are going to be talking about our Media Plan of the Year Awards, which uh, I don't know about you guys. I, I typically don't get super excited about media plans because nine times out of ten, it's just Here's where we're going to put our money. That's where our ads are going to go. But I will say that in the last few years, this is a long-running uh, award franchise with Adweek. But in the last few years, I feel like they've it's really shown how the industry is evolving, how we define uh, media and what that means. Um, it you know It's no longer just uh, – I remember it used to be things like, oh, this – you know, this bank changed their name and they came up with, uh, you know, a really good outdoor strategy to let people know their name was different. But these days, it's much more interesting. I mean, you're really seeing how people pick and choose which, uh, you know, we're going to go we're going to go deep on Twitch. We're going to go all in on, uh, you know, this kind of hacking this uh, certain aspect of, of the way ads are served up. Uh, Tim, do you agree? I mean, it just feels like this has become a much more creative endeavor in recent years. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we call it Media Plan of the Year. It's really creative Media Plan of the Year. Um, you know, so many of the ones this year. Uh, the media choices are almost the most creative part of the campaign in many ways, and so, yeah, I mean, a lot of the a lot of the campaigns here are just really delightful in the way that they took an idea and, and used media specifically to really pay it off. Um, really great thinking across the board on on so many of these campaigns. Now, Tim, why don't you tee us up with our uh, big winner, which was Snickers uh, for an effort out of Australia. Tell us about Hunger Rhythm. So, yeah, this is uh, an effort from I believe it it launched about. In May 2016, it's called Hungerism, and uh, it was created by Cleminger BBDO Melbourne, a very very creative uh, agency, and and it was just an amazing way to um, to connect online and offline. It, you know, advertising kind of social media meets point of sale, which is a really uh, you know difficult thing to do. Um, there were many campaigns. I, I want to say five or six years ago, there were a lot of campaigns that kind of monitored the internet. Uh, to try to gauge the mood of the internet and then did something with that data. Usually what what they did was uh, have a billboard of some kind, which had like a smiley face or a sad face. I remember Jello Pudding did one of these in New York um, pretty notably. Um, but really, th- this Hunger Rhythm campaign kind of took it a step further, and it gauged the mood of the internet using um, an algorithm 
uh, I, I think it was like it, it understood 3,000 words and it analyzed about 14,000 social posts every day uh, to determine whether the, the internet was happy or sad. And they connected this to 7-Eleven stores and, and it would adjust the price of Snickers candy bars uh, in those stores in real time based on the internet's mood. So the angrier the internet was, the cheaper the candy became um, to make everyone a bit happier. Yeah, the thinking here being the classic, uh, you're not you when you're hungry, right? So. They want to exactly. so, give you cheaper um, Snickers. And, and it was really a robust campaign. I mean, the, the in-store price at, at 7-Elevens across Australia, uh, it would change apparently up to 140 times a day. And it wasn't just like five cents off either. It was um, the, the price dropped as low as 82% off apparently. And uh, the brand was pretty funny when they when they first announced this. Um, <laughs> they said, uh, for example, if Donald Trump receives the Republican Party's endorsement, the price of a Snickers could plummet to fifty cents. <laughs> <laughs> Good Just news. Kind of hilarious. So. <laughs> Um, I thought it was a really clever. I mean, it's obviously a really clever campaign. It won a ton of awards at Cannes. It won it won gold lions in mobile, media, direct, and cyber. Um, it's surprising in some ways that it didn't actually get the Grand Prix in any of those categories uh, and get the you know ensuing publicity that came with that. But absolutely brilliant use of media, connecting social with point of sale, which are two completely disparate. Uh, mediums that just are almost never connected. Um, so yeah, I mean, w- wonderful work uh, and and fully deserving of our of our grand prize this this year. Yes, and congratulations, Mediacom, I believe, was the agency on that one. Uh, so uh, congrats to them, uh, Charles. You see more than any of us as social editor. You see the kind of highs and lows of the internet's mood day to day. You know, what struck you about this one, or what do you think brands can kind of learn from this idea? Uh, well, what I liked about it is that it kind of brought back a sentiment sort of for social media like five, six years ago when Twitter and everything started becoming useful tools for, for marketing purposes, especially TV networks always paid. They're trying to figure out like, oh, people are talking about us, but how do they feel about us? And it was sort of a hot topic at the time. And I don't think technology was really quite there yet as far as machine learning. Um, but I... I think it's more important because we still talk people, how many tweets did we get? You know, if you look at social ratings reports, it's just, you know, volume and things like that. Um, and not, and it's not still exactly how people feel. I think a good, a good example of this would be CBS and the Emmys, you know, dominating social, social traffic throughout the night, but sort of overwhelming of that was negative. Um, so I think brands can, can sort of continue to use this technology from from the back end standpoint of of trying to uh, understand their audience and understand uh, how people are engaging with with their ads a little bit more uh, creatively. Well, it turns the idea on its head that negative, you know, that negative sentiment is bad. Right. You know that it has to be bad. That uh, you know that puts a some positive spin because you know a lot of times it's not about people are being jerks. It's just about people are upset or there's bad things happening. And, and for a brand to kind of offer up a, a silver lining, uh, when, you know, when bad things happen, even if it's half off. Man, I'll take half off a Snickers bar. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it was an interesting takeaway. Well, let's talk about a few of the other uh, plans that won. Sammy, you wrote up uh, quite a few of these. Uh, one was one we talked about uh, last week, I think, even. Uh, yeah. w- w- tell us about that one again. 
Sure. So that one was um, beer bottle sand coming uh, from DB Breweries in New Zealand, um, which is kind of a fun, you know, neighbor to the Snickers in Australia. Um, and it was with PhD New Zealand, and they kind of created a really interesting machine that encourages people to drink because they can then place their beer bottles in the machine. It'll crunch them up and turn them into like beautiful, touchable sand, uh, which DB Breweries kind of spoke to New Zealanders' love of of beaches and kind of wanting to preserve them since that's like their whole steez, basically. Uh, so it was kind of a, a recycling environmental aspect to um, kind of keep drinking fun and you won't have to worry about beach erosion. And what I found interesting was that other countries are starting to look at the machines they created to maybe incorporate into their own conservation efforts um, to, to kind of, you know, uh, ease the, the, you know, flow away of sand from, from their beaches since that's a, a concern around the world. Well, one thing we didn't talk about when we discussed this in a previous uh, episode was that you know, recycling is based on supply and demand and largely based on demand. Uh, and for years, uh, green glass, anyone who drinks, anyone who drinks anything that comes in glass knows the reality that recycling glass can be hard to find uh, sometimes. And even if you have a place that accepts glass to recycle, a lot of times the sad reality is that it just gets thrown in a landfill anyway, mm-hmm. uh, because recycling demands that businesses have a, a a desire to buy that raw material and turn it back into something else. Green glass is, and clear glass are two of the ones that no one ever wants. Because uh, the the few breweries uh, that you know the Coronas and the Heineken, the ones you could name that use those colors, they have all the glass they'll ever need. Like <laughs> they're not hurting for it. <laughs> they um, also shouldn't be using the colored glass outside of branding. <laughs> I think this came up last time you were on. Like you were <laughs> waging a war against <laughs> just... how light hurts alcohol. Yeah, it's that's true. <laughs> <laughs> but nobody's um, drinking TBX for it or Heineken or. Rolling Rock because they care about esters. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like they they work around it. I think they know their they know their <laughs> yeah. limitations too. Um, Sammy, what were some of the other ones you wrote up this time? Sure. Um, one of the other ones that I really enjoyed was uh, Batman Batman barges in. Um, that was over in the UK that aired on Channel Four, which is one of their kind of. Um, commercial ad-supported networks, uh, and instead of their normal, you know, very calm, soothing, if you've ever watched, uh, I don't know, a BBC program um, they um, or something from the UK, they kind of have announcers in between programs or uh, in the middle of them to kind of remind you what you're watching and what's coming up next. And this time around, they had Will Arnett as Lego Batman kind of interrupt these promos in his usual fashion <laughs> uh, and kind of a, a really fun way to, to reach a much broader audience and kind of show people um, the the movie's kind of fun and obnoxious <laughs> to, to drive more people. It ended up driving a, a huge amount of sales and was seen by almost half the UK population. So it was a pretty uh, fun, uh, annoying in the good way that Lego Batman can be sort of campaign. Kind of reminiscent of, I don't think he, he interrupted actual commercials, right? He just showed up in the in the breaks between commercials. Yeah, he was just the, the promo announcer instead right, of okay. the, the usual kind of... Uh, soothing <laughs> um, gotcha. uh, announcer. Yeah, it reminded me a little bit of uh, when, when Terry Crews um, barged into other brands' commercials a few years back for Old Spice and started yelling <laughs> and, like, disrupting. And the, the other brands were in on it. They actually made, they actually partnered with Old Spice to create, I think Downey was one of them. 
Is that the one with the little bear or whatever that the, yeah, the, yeah, the snuggle yeah. snuggle bear? Snuggle. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think I, I think that was one of the ones where Terry Crews kind of jumped in and. But yeah, it's a, always a fun idea to kind of disrupt uh, a medium that you expect you, you only expect one thing from, and to mm-hmm. have that disrupted is super memorable. Well, let's uh, let's listen to some of that one. Hey, it's the Cape Crusader taking over the airwaves on Channel Four, telling you what's coming up next. I did have it written down here somewhere, but uh, it'll come to me. Um, I'm guessing some old ladies in like a row house on a gray rainy street. Does that sound familiar, England? All right, you also wrote about uh, an Excedrin campaign, I believe, right, Sammy? Yeah, so that one was called uh, Debate Headache, uh, and that aired around the time of 2016's presidential debates. And Excedrin had already been paying attention to and kind of pulling social media for their own like PR purposes um, for people complaining about stress and headaches relating to the election and the political process in general. Um, and an opportunity came around directly on a day of a debate for a sponsored trend on Twitter. And so Excedrin kind of worked pretty quickly um, to decide to do something about it, even though it was kind of risky dipping their toe into politics. It was, you know, simply like a, a really cute animated campaign. They they ran on Twitter using the hashtag debate headache, um, and they actually saw like a huge sales lift thanks to it. So it was kind of an ability to stay flexible, stay kind of, you know, funny and loose uh, talking about a serious topic. And it ended up being a risk that really worked for them. Tim, what were some of the other campaigns that jumped out at you? You know, I really liked uh, another PhD campaign. P- uh, PhD had a lot of um, winners mm-hmm. on our list. Um, this this one's probably going to come seem kind of traditional. Uh, it was it was the work for Google Home where they actually uh, did sort of a product placement for Google Home in Modern Family, and it had uh, Phil Dunphy played by Ty Burrell. Um, he buys a Google Home, and then he sort of goes through the the, the process of setting it up and and. I think he asks it to play a movie soundtrack. He asks it to dim the lights. Um, he asks it to find a video of a pirate playing badminton with a kangaroo, and his kids are super psyched to watch him do this. Um, you know, not super um, revolutionary here, but um, I really just, it was such a perfect fit. I mean, um, first of all, um, Phil Dunphy is, is the character who's always been an early adopter on Modern Family. There was an episode years ago where he waited in line for an iPad for the entire <laughs> episode. And uh, but at the same time, he's also uh, well known as like a bumbling idiot who can't do anything right. And so, you know, the fact that he could operate this Google Home without screwing it up um, kind of really nicely showed how easy the device is to use. So as far as um, seamless integrations, I thought this was a great example. Um, conversely, I don't, did you guys hear about what South Park did with with voice activated devices last week in the, no, their episode? No, I'm worried. <laughs> <laughs> they, 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 uh, it was an episode, I think last, is it Wednesdays? I think that, that show airs, I think it was last Wednesday Correct. night. Um, uh, I think the episode was all about Cartman gets a, gets a Google, gets an Alexa and then he gets a Google home and he, and he, he starts, um, basically telling it to say all these obscene things. And apparently it, it's, it, it triggered people's Google homes at home to also say mm-hmm. obscene things and add sort of obscene items to their grocery lists and things like this. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently, uh, it, he also set an alarm for 7 a.m. that that set some people's <laughs> devices to go. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> People were like alternately furious and 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 amused by it. Yeah, I've <laughs> I've already gotten to the point where I I probably mute my Google Home 
more times than not, and and not because of any TV I'm watching, but just because I have children. And if you have mm-hmm. children, they will yes. they will constantly. If you try listening to music, they will change the station. If you if you are like doing anything, they will come in and tell it to do something completely unrelated. And uh, God bless the microphone mute button. Uh, but yeah, it's gonna be <laughs> sad if people have to get to a point where that's the default setting. That's certainly not what these companies want. No, but I will say I like um, I'm always a big fan of product placement, especially when it's extra blatant. And my go to reference is always Snapple and 30 Rock, where they just talk directly to camera (laughs) while drinking it. Um, But uh, a point someone made um, a few weeks ago that I thought was interesting is that as people are able to skip ads or, you know, um, subscribe to things with without an ad subscription um, or ad-supported model, uh, they're going to have to get ads and products in there somewhere. So we'll probably see more and more product placement and seamless integrations, as it were, as that becomes the, the MO for people watching stuff. I, I don't think, for me, it'll ever get better than either the Subway mentions on uh, Hawaii Five-0, where they spent like four minutes describing chicken teriyaki subs, <laughs> like literally like half an episode. And then, uh, and then and the, although they have claimed this was not paid, but on House of Cards, uh, whenever he starts talking about, uh, I love my PlayStation. <laughs> you know, yes. like love, yeah. I love playing Call of Duty on my PlayStation. <laughs> I think my favorite um, product placement um, story actually came from Conan O'Brien a few years ago. He, he was in, he was actually in Cannes um, for, and it was one of the best, probably the best thing I've ever seen in Cannes. It was Anderson Cooper interviewing Conan O'Brien on the main stage at Cannes. It was That's it was an hour, and it was the most one of the funniest things I've ever seen. But anyway, mm. at one point he was talking about uh, Branton integrations on his TBS show and he, he gave Snickers as an example and he said uh, he said yeah you know early on they say oh Snickers just wants to be involved in your show and then later on it turns out you know that I have to lick the Snickers bar and look into the <laughs> camera while I'm licking the Snickers bar and he had a pretty funny line. He said, uh, "He said I do that in the privacy of my home, but I don't do it for, m- <laughs> but I don't do it for money." And then he says, well, "Actually, I do it for money, but in the privacy of my home." <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, we should probably wrap up. Uh, thank you to each of our panelists for hopping on to talk about our media plan of the year. I definitely recommend you check out. Man, there's a lot of winners in this year's list. So if you Google uh, Ad Week. Uh, okay, Google, <laughs> find Adweek's Media Plan of the Year. Uh, but yeah, check out the uh, Media Plan of the Year winners uh, for this year. Really great roster. Uh, and uh, yeah, thanks again, uh, Sammy, Charles. Always great to have you. Uh, don't forget, you can drop us an email at podcast at adweek.com. We love hearing from you. And uh, yeah, it's just podcast at adweek.com. Our theme music is by Home. This episode was produced by Christina Monlos. Thank you, Christina. Please take a moment, if you have not already, to leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Those reviews mean a lot to us personally, and they also help new audiences discover the show. Thank you, as always. I'm David Griner with Adweek, and we will be back next week. Don't forget to check out Adweek's new jobs board to find great opportunities in your industry or to post the newest openings at your company. Visit jobs.adweek.com. That's jobs.adweek.com.